welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, my name is James and welcome to the Madden America podcast. And today we are sharing a, a special interview that's being done as part of uh, World Tapering Day. So World Tapering Day is being held on the 4th, 5th and 6th of November 2022. And it aims to raise global awareness of the need to safely taper psychotropic drugs. And it's been organized by people with personal experience of the severe difficulties that can arise when stopping antidepressants antipsychotics or benzodiazepines. Um, so if you are listening to this uh, as the podcast and you'd like to find out more or to participate, you can visit the website worldtaperingday.org. That's worldtaperingday.org. And so on to our guest for today, and I'm really, really delighted to be joined by Anders Sorensen. Um, Anders is a, a Danish clinical psychologist with a special interest in psychiatric drug withdrawal. Um, and he's, he's undertaken research which assessed the state of guidance on psychiatric drug withdrawal. And he's also paid close attention to tapering methods with the aim of identifying approaches which might make withdrawal more tolerable for people. So in addition to his research work, Anders utilizes psychotherapy in his private practice when helping people to come off the drugs. And we'll get to talk about some of that in this interview. So um, uh, Anders, welcome. I'm so pleased that you can join me today. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Thanks for having me. So um, firstly, to kind of get us underway, could you tell us a little bit about you and in particular, kind of how it was you came to be interested in issues around withdrawal from psychiatric drugs? Yeah, of course. So, so uh, interesting question, actually, that I get asked a lot. Long story short, I, I like good science and um, I like studying what good science is, which is a research field in its own right, right? Research methodology, like the science of science, if you may. Um, when you're really interested in quality science and then dive into psychiatric research, uh, your heart is kind of broken. It, it looks convincing and it looks persuasive and it's written in a very academic and persuasive language with all the brain scans and the biological measures, fancy words, all the theories, but is in reality replete with assumptions and bias, especially regarding the theories we have about how psychiatric drugs work. And that's what got me into this field, actually. So when you study the literature in this light, what happens at least for me, and I know a couple of other colleagues who did this, you end up understanding psychiatric drugs as, as pure symptomatic treatment, which can be helpful for some people in some situations, preferably in acute crisis, short term, but, but in a fundamentally different way than what we're told about various biological abnormalities and so on. So um, again, long story short, I, I did my bachelor's back in 2014, now it's eight years ago, on something called epigenetics, which I shouldn't dive too much into, but the idea was titled The Implications of Epigenetics on Psychiatric Drug Treatment, kind of debunking these basic assumptions of arguing, uh, of talking about antidepressants, antipsychotics, and there being any causal relationship between any brain abnormality and the reason for intervening there. It just doesn't hold up. Um, uh, it's not true. And I believe we can make that argument using pure data and logic. Well, the point is, my next question was then, Okay, how then do psychiatric drugs work? And I'm still interested in this question. It's not that they don't work, it's that they work in a different way that we're told. In that regard, because I am a psychologist, there is a, a concept in psychology called emotion regulation. Uh, and just consider the definition of this. 
Emotion regulation in psychology is defined as its strategies, like the processes by which individuals influence which emotions they have, when they have them, and how they experience and express these emotions. Another definition is actions taken by a person to modify or change emotions or increase or reduce their intensity. Now, if we, if we for once leave the idea of them treating any biological illnesses, these concepts kind of make sense for me as what psychiatric drugs do. They are emotion regulation strategies. They're things we do or take to regulate our minds, our moods. They're psychoactive substances, no biological magic happening there. So, and the reason this is, is interesting is that um, emotion regulation has received a lot of attention in clinical psychology because it appears that it matters how we regulate our emotions and thoughts. So strategies like, we know that strategies like avoidance, suppression, uh, substance use, distraction, worrying, rumination, isolating ourselves, all these strategies tend to correlate with psychopathology and actually can predict it. Because they often work here and now, but then tend to backfire long-term, creating other problems. Whereas strategies like acceptance, problem-solving, allowing emotions to unfold, actually listening to them, cognitive restructuring, detached mindfulness, all these fancy psychological terms tend to correlate with less psychopathology or no levels of psychopathology. So I ask myself the question, what is the difference between helping people come off psychiatric drugs, which is a way of numbing the mind, avoiding emotions, introducing artificial control, and doing what I would otherwise do as a psychologist. And I concluded in my, in my, my master's thesis back, back in 2016 that these are largely the same. I can draw on much of my psychotherapeutic uh, tools, if you may, helping people come off psychiatric drugs with one major difference, which is why we're here today, the withdrawal symptoms. You can't just stop. You can't just remove drugs as a strategy because you get dependent on them. And I discovered early with my first patients that they couldn't just stop. And the withdrawal reactions they experienced were way worse, way more extreme and long-lasting than what we were told. And that was really what started my interest in this field. I kind of decided to trust my patients and not so much in the books because I've seen other things in their psychiatry books that turn out to not be true. So that kind of set the stage for this whole PhD and where I am now. Great. Thank you, Anders. That's, that, that's really helpful. And I'm so heartened to hear that there are people that want to look beyond the standard texts and the standard teachings to try and work out for themselves what's going on. So, you know, I, I'm really grateful that this work is going on. So, um, moving on then into your research into withdrawal. In, in, in 2021, you authored a paper which reviewed a very important aspect of how antidepressants affect the body. Um, so without getting too technical and, you know, people might be able to go and find the paper themselves, we, we sometimes hear about brain imaging techniques, PET or SPECT scans, being used to study what is known as serotonin transporter occupancy. So before we talk about the findings of your research, could you tell us a little bit about what serotonin transporter occupancy is and why it might be important in understanding withdrawal problems? Yes, of course, because it is kind of the center of the main main argument here. And uh, I'll try. It's a very geeky paper, even for me to read, even when geeky <laughs> to write. But but um, but the, the, so the serotonin transporter is is a receptor. It's the primary target receptor of most antidepressants. That's what psychiatric drugs do. They occupy receptors. It's even in the name SSRI, so it stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. So. The brain has a function to reuptake its uh, serotonin from the synaptic cleft, and that's what's called the serotonin transporter. 
So all we need to know is that 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 occupancy then is a term for what the drugs do. They occupy receptors. So serotonin transporter occupancy is the mechanism by which most antidepressants raise serotonin levels in the brain. Now, selectivity is an illusion, I should say. It's reductionistic to only look at one receptor. So the first S and SSRIs, actually, it's not possible. Ask anyone who studies the brain, they'll say it's not possible to just selectively target one receptor and then increase or decrease that. Um, but it's the primary biological effect. That's why we would expect um, withdrawal symptoms to somewhat follow the degree to which the drug occupies this receptor. Once we understand that brain chemistry is not out of balance, but is actually under what is called homeostatic control. Um, we understand that what drugs do to our brain chemistry is not a correction, it's not fixing stuff, it's actually a perturbation, which the brain is fundamentally hardwired into identifying, recognizing, and then counteracting. And that's the theory right now while we get uh, withdrawal symptoms. So you raise serotonin levels with a drug, the body reduces its sensitivity to serotonin. If you reduce your sensitivity to dopamine, for example, the antipsychotics, the body just says, hell no, I'll spit out more dopamine. So it will always regulate in the opposite direction, regardless of how we feel about the drug. Yes, so problem with withdrawal symptoms, let's just get the explanation done here now. Like serotonin levels, when you reduce the dose, the serotonin levels, the affected levels of neurotransmitters will reduce faster than the adaptation. There's a time lag there. And it's that period of time where we'll experience withdrawal symptoms. So because the body adapts, it has to readapt to a lower dose. And that takes time, depending on how much you reduce the dose with. Hence the whole idea of gradual tapering, to give the body this task in, in, in small pieces. It is quite a geeky paper, but it is fascinating to read too. And I, I was quite interested to read in it that um, the, the the PET and SPECT scans that are used to, for you know, to find this information, they they can't actually tell anything about the effect of these drugs on whatever depression is in the brain, can they? But they can act as a proxy measure for maybe how the drugs affect the brain, but they can't tell us anything about depression. Is that right? Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah I think we have plenty of evidence to suggest that. That's the irony of all. The depression doesn't have anything to do with imbalances in this system. But that, but it's still true. It doesn't change that the drugs do affect serotonin levels. That's absolutely sure. So regardless, so you, you can talk withdrawal symptoms without talking effect, because like clinical effect, this definitely is a biological effect on the brain, which means that the body adapts. The problem with this adaptation, as I see it, this is like a, a fundamental thing that all long-term psychiatric drug treatment has against it. The body will eventually adapt, and when you stop the drug, it can create this, say, illusion of an effect. Because you stop the drug, you feel worse. Fundamental question. Is that because you get into contact with the underlying withdrawal state, or is that because the drugs work? And the solution to that, obviously, which is why we're here, is gradual tapering. So turning to the kind of results and you know the, the, what you found from your work, um, you know to get to give some people some idea, some of the studies you looked at showed that even a very very low dose of an SSRI can occupy these serotonin transporters to a great extent. So you, in the paper you give the example of fluoxetine or Prozac, some people might know it as. So the studies reviewed found that a, just a one milligram dose might give an occupancy rate of between twenty four and thirty six percent. So. That one milligram is doing a lot of work in the brain, isn't it? Exactly. And that's what we're trying to get people to understand, because it looks absolutely absurd that one milligram of something, 
which is one-tenth of the smallest pill. We also have it for effects, the, the smallest standard available pill. We also have the data for Effexor, for example. Effexor has been uh, measured down to one-fifteenth of the slowest, of the smallest standard available pill. It looks absurd. You can almost can't see it when you put it on a table, and it has a very high effect. So, yes, when we say, for example, one milligram has between 24 and 36 percent occupancy of the serotonin transporter, what that means is that out of the 100 percent, out of all your serotonin transporter receptors, between 24 and 36 percent of them are occupied by one milligram. And that's the whole idea. These data show how extremely potent antidepressants are at low doses, because in fact, these are not low doses. Um, and the problem is obvious. So if, from looking at the graphs, you can see that, that uh, the relationship between dose and occupancy, as dose increases, occupancy does increase. The biological effect of the brain does increase extremely rapidly in the lower dose range. Again, lower, that's the whole point, because they're not low doses. And then it kind of plateaus. Now, the problem is obvious. Small reductions in the lower dose range will have large effects on serotonin transporter occupancy, and thus in drops, sudden drops in serotonin levels, and thus again in the incidence and severity of withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, that's uh, that's so important, isn't it? Because you know we we you know people that have tried to come off antidepressants themselves, and are, are people watching this and listening to this? I'm sure many of them will ex have experienced that thing where you go to your doctor and your doctor says, "Look, you're on a very low dose." I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be a problem for you to come off. But your the review work that you did explains really well why it gets so difficult for people as they get to lower doses. So you know that's fun. That's really important, isn't it? It's, it it really is because many many people will will get stuck at low doses, and it looks it looks funny. Kind of these dose reduction schemes. Sometimes you can actually make some pretty dramatic reductions if you're on a high dose. Now, I shouldn't put any rules up here because some can and some can't, but some definitely can reduce the dose in the higher dose range quite dramatically with no other consequence than fewer, with, uh, fewer side effects, but no withdrawal symptoms. And then at some point you hit this um, bend on the curve, you hit the plateau, and then just 5 or 10% of your dose will have dramatic effects. And if you don't know that the relationship between dose and occupancy is, is nonlinear, that makes absolutely no sense, <laughs> and it's completely character. But it does make sense now, and and I think the um, the withdrawal community—that's the irony of it all. That's where research comes <laughs> second to, to the lay person community, lay people community. They've known this for years, maybe even decades, but have kind of been 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 laughed a bit off of academic psychiatry. Just they haven't been believed in that such small dose reduction could have an effect. And now we kind of have the data. These are hardcore biological brain scans of a biological effect, which is really good. So patients were right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it, it is really validating, I think, for, as you say, you know, those people that have tried this and been there, they know themselves that they might have had an easier time to begin with, but a dreadfully terrible time at some point in the lower dose range. And yet they've told their doctor and their doctor said, well, that doesn't make sense because, you know, the effects should get smaller with a lower dose. But this work proves the mechanism by which that is true for people. Um so in the paper, then, you go on to talk about what's, what's called hyperbolic dose reductions as a way of kind of mitigating this. So can you, can you tell us why a hyperbolic uh, reduction might be preferable to a fixed reduction rate or equal percentage decreases? 
this goes back to understanding why withdrawal symptoms occur. It's readaptation in the brain. So if you just stop the drug as the lowest standard available dose, or even half of that, you stop the drug at a dose corresponding to very high occupancy rates, and the body can't keep up. So we're trying to solve that problem. The solution is quite obvious. You need to go below the lowest dose, way below the lowest dose, sometimes down to one-tenth or one-fifteenth of the lowest dose. Um, hyperbolic tapering is as opposed to linear tapering. And linear taping would be, for example, reducing by five milligram all the way down to zero. <clears throat> now, those five milligram, the next five milligram you take off would be a much larger reduction than the previous one. So, for example, going from 20 to 15 milligram or something is less than going from 15 to 10 and onwards. <clears throat> and the last milligram will be much more potent. If you plot the occupancy rates by the dose, you can see that that's not a gradual tapering. And the solution to that is what's been called a hyperbolic tapering. And if you have to put up some rule, which I, I rarely do, it means that you should reduce by some percentage of your previous dose, not of the original dose. And that will mean that the dose reductions get smaller and smaller. So hyperbolic tapering is all about making the reductions kind of fit this hyperbolic dose um, occupancy curve. And it means that as you, go, as, as you approach zero, your dose reductions need to be smaller and smaller. And uh, that's a way of, of, of um, unblocking serotonin transporter Unblocking the serotonin transporter gradually, which is what we want, requires hyperbolic reduction of dose. If you reduce in the same increments, the, same, the next reduction will always correspond to a larger occupancy reduction. And that's where we have the problem. Thank you, Anders. And I, 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 I'm just wondering, I, I mean, I, I guess the answer is no at this point because there's probably still a lot of work to do, but has there been any work done to rerun these PET or SPECT scans on people who have completely withdrawn after a period of time to see whether, you know, there's any, uh, any different data that arises afterwards? I'm guessing not. No, the field is, 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 <laughs> is still at Adam and Eva at that point, you know. Sometimes we still have to convince people that withdrawal symptoms actually exist and that they're called withdrawal symptoms and all this. So I think there's, uh, we've come a long way still. We're allowed to call it withdrawal symptoms in the major papers now, not discontinuation studies. But no, that kind of research I haven't, I'm not familiar with, sadly. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. You know, thank you for kind of explaining the science for us. You know, that that's that's really helpful. And you know, the the other part of this is is obviously people facing withdrawal. You know, there, there is a significant physical challenge there, but there is a psychological challenge too. So, you know, you, you're also a, a psychologist and working clinic, and so you you already recognise the importance of helping people practically deal with withdrawal. You know, and and aiding them with the psychological issues that arise during the process of coming off the drugs. So. Could you tell us a little bit about the kind of psychological challenges that people withdrawing face and how psychological therapy, like you mentioned emotion regulation earlier, how that might help them through those difficulties? Yeah, so one thing is minimizing withdrawal via hyperbolic tapering. We covered that. The next is, is, first of all, helping people get through withdrawal because most people cannot completely avoid withdrawal symptoms depending on your method. But to some degree, especially in the last phase of the tapering, You'll need to learn how to get through withdrawal symptoms, how to regulate and manage them while they're there. And again, we have a lot of psychological methods there that, that I find helpful. And, and, and so, yeah, the first question is, um, how do you get through withdrawal? And the next psychological question that we'll take, obviously, okay, 
we just established that the drug is a coping mechanism, nothing else. So obviously you'll need other strategies once off the drug. Uh, if you're used to, to, to regulating your mind with a substance that sedates it, dampens it, creates a distance to it, you'll need other strategies to prevent relapse, definitely. So, um, so the reason symptoms is a problem, if you think about it, the reason withdrawal symptoms is a problem is that they can pull in your attention, they can capture your focus, they can steal it from other things you might want to do, like socialize or enjoy things, stay focused or sleep even. That's what symptoms can do. And we can solve that problem psychologically. We can, psychologically speaking, your attention is something you can train. You can train to have, to be in distress and not give it your focus. It's a very fluffy thing to explain <laughs> in language. That's why we have all sorts of experiential exercises. But just the theory, right? You can actually, just as if you had the flu or if you were tired or hungry, you could learn to not give that focus, not fight it, not suppress it, but detach from it, leave it. And that, to me, is the absolutely strongest psychological friend in psychiatric drug withdrawal because you can actually learn to not pay attention to even pretty severe symptoms. And most people will find that they have a better day doing stuff to the degree, to the degree that they can do stuff. Obviously, that's the fundamental problem. It's difficult because your attention is constantly being towards your symptoms and your distress but it doesn't change that you can learn it you, you, you can discover how to be in distress and not give it focus and once we understand that withdrawal symptoms is like uh, a wound that your body knows how to heal it will heal we just can't intervene we can't speed up the process but we can let the wound be a wound and and, and be engaged in other other stuff and it sounds easy i know but but it's possible via various experiential exercises to actually discover this and then you'll discover that withdrawal symptoms like catastrophizing thoughts or whatever you would have, depressed feelings, tend to step in the background when you focus externally. And that's very strong to discover that mechanism. That's what gets you through weeks, months, sometimes years of, of withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Anders. And I, I wondered what you felt about, you know, that there's, again, in, in the kind of community of people affected by this, you know, that the, there, are, there are a group of people who say, you know, I, I've tried to accept what happened to me, the, the drugging and the difficulties and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, they, they try their best to, to coexist with it. And then there might be another group of people that say, well, I can never accept what was done to me and fight against it every day. You know, it, I mean, is it is it healthy, do you think, to try and accept what we can't change and to try and live with those difficult experiences? Yeah, as long as it doesn't sound like giving up because you're entitled to be angry. You didn't put yourself... In, in getting um, dependent on, on prescriptive drugs. So all emotions, all emotions you may have are okay. That's not what this is about. They're all okay. But learning to detach from them, when you find that helpful, that's strong. So that's not to me the opposite. So acceptance can sound like giving up. <laughs> it has a negative vibe to it too. And it, uh, not in my opinion, it's, 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 it's the opposite of fighting against what's there. And Withdrawal is difficult enough already. So the best way through him is some degree of radical acceptance and forced mindfulness into getting through this. It kind of removes, it can remove a whole psychological layer of worries and ruminations and threat monitoring and all these things that we do to protect ourselves, but that actually ends up working against us. So there's a huge psychological component of coming off psychiatric drugs. And it's a tricky one because, as you, yeah, it may sound like you're just giving up. 
It's not. And I promise you, uh, you won't find anything of value in the withdrawal emotions, like because it can look exactly like a depression. It can look exactly like anxiety, but it's not. It's, 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 it's withdrawal, right? And I promise you, you won't find anything in those emotions. They're, they're, they're artificial. They just present themselves as very, very real. And, all, and, and besides the, the correct tapering, there's an issue of helping people is a thing of helping people get through periods that feel like depression, but is not. Because normally when you're depressed, you should figure out what you're depressed about and do something about that, right? You're depressed over something. You're just not depressed. That's what psychiatry is trying to, to convince us, but, but you're not. But in these exact emotions, there's absolutely nothing in there. Uh, it's a product of, ad- product of adaptation. So it's tricky. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really cruel irony, isn't it? That that many of the effects that people get from coming off the drugs mimic the reasons they were prescribed the drugs in the first place, and then of course they go to a doctor who knows nothing about withdrawal or tapering, who says, "Well, it's just your illness returning." But we we know that's not the case, don't we? Yes, that's uh, and that's really my my a day at the office in a nutshell. Obviously, first avoiding this, and actually sometimes we can avoid withdrawal completely. And sometimes we can minimize it. And then it's a question of going through these motions a couple of times, like experiencing to be in something that looks like what you took the drug for lasts maybe a, a week or so. Yet, like going through that, experiencing that makes it easier the next time you do it. And that's really strong stuff to, to actually have an, a physical, emotional experience of feeling absolutely horrible and depressed, but experiencing that with fate. And that's where we need to help people get through. Sadly, that happens rarely. And that gets back to, to the current definitions of withdrawal symptoms. They are extremely um, understated, if that's a word, um, uh, compared to the evidence and compared to what people have tried to say. And that's a problem because that's the document your doctor will look up and see, okay, withdrawal symptoms is something self-limiting, brief and mild, lasting maybe a couple of weeks. And that'll be the definition, meaning that a lot of, of withdrawal reactions routinely get misinterpreted. We've talked about the fact that you know there's a wide range of experiences that people have when they try to stop antidepressants and uh, some of the other drugs too. So some can seem to get off without too much trouble. Some have problems when they taper but are fine afterwards. But there are a group of people, and I, I'm probably one of those people, who seem to struggle for long periods after they've tapered. So I wondered, Anders, Anders what your experience was of people who go on to suffer long-term problems after tapering off antidepressants. Yeah, that's one of the really, really dark chapters, isn't it, of, of, of um, psychopharmacology is can it lead to permanent damage? I see it. I see it rarely, but um, it definitely exists. And so most, most of the people I see with prolonged withdrawal symptoms, or uh, what we should call it, some of them either tapered incorrectly, like dropped at a dose that was too high, uh, exp- uh, um, which kind of makes sense that the body can get stuck I believe there are other mechanisms from biology where the body gets stuck. Even though we reintroduce the drug, the damage has been done and, and, and it needs to, to, to recalibrate with time. So one, one uh, explanation could be simply be incorrect tapering, which is why we're here teaching people how to do it correctly. Another thing I see is like people experiencing, people having experienced very severe side effects when starting the drugs, like drug harms when starting the drug. Uh, and now psychiatry has succeeded in categorizing these messages our body sends as clear signs saying, do not put this drug in me. 
like side effects extreme as something we should just wait and over here and 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 over here just keep taking drug it'll pass the reason i'm saying this is that some of the people i see who've been only taking the drugs for maybe weeks maybe months so they haven't become that dependent on them tapered off the drug and these side effects kept on going i think that's really where it all starts if you have severe side effects when you start the drug that can also kind of get stuck so either incorrect tapering or extreme sensitivity to the side effects of the first point can kind of get stuck. The problem is that you can't know. Any given person cannot know whether you are very sensitive, whether you will have no problem getting on, on and off the drug, whether you will have the problems. There's no way of predicting it. But it's gambling to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. It it is very much a gamble for people, isn't it? Because they might not know they've got a problem until several several years in of treatment when they try to stop, make a small reduction, and they're in the most difficult place imaginable. Yes, yes, and they didn't ask for that. And worst of all, uh, they we aren't informed. Let's say we uh, we aren't informed about this. It's in the science, but the whole idea of having a guideline is that not every doctor and not every <clears throat> A uh, patient has to go through all the science literature. Good luck doing that. <laughs> That's not how our system works. So we hire some people to make a guideline condensing the research literature. That is just a huge problem that really gives a, it's, it's a huge gatekeeper for conflicts of interest, right? Because much of the data will not be in those guidelines for whatever reasons, meaning that we're uninformed. It's the saddest days of the office for me when I have to be the one explaining to people you're actually dependent on this stuff. You can't just stop. It can be it, it could it could be severe for you to get off. It could take years. So, Anders, in you know, in, in kind of summarising, you know, your I mean, you you got a fairly unique perspective in having done PhD research on this, and also you know, in helping people face to face in a, a clinical practice. So, you know, I wondered what your experiences both in research and clinic have taught you about the best way to approach withdrawal from psychiatric drugs. So, first of all, of course. Hyperbolic tapering is a, is, is a rule. It's a must. Um, it has to be flexible in some way because it's individual. Look, these graphs measure the mean, the average. So you can't just go into the graph and read, okay, I'm on that dose. I have that degree of occupancy. It, it depends. Some people ha have to, um, so it's a personalized individual um, aspect of it. It's universal that it has to be hyperbolic, but when it has to be hyperbolic changes. So that's the first thing. It's really difficult to make schemes, percentage rules. There's really just reducing, stabilizing, reducing, stabilizing. Uh, and then, of course, understanding, like really understanding how severe withdrawal symptoms can be so you don't get caught up in analyzing it and thinking this is you without the drug. That's the first thing which we've covered. And we know how to do that. It just takes time, but we know how to do that. It just requires small enough doses. But coming off psychiatric drugs, and that's what my next point was, it's, it's more, to me, it's more than withdrawal and chemistry. To some people, it is. Uh, first of all, it involves other strategies. If you're used to, to, um, to, to stopping your worries and your ruminations uh, and your traumas with a drug, well, that's going to, often going to resurface unless you have other, have had other treatments or strategies put in place while on the drug. Most, some people haven't. So there is an aspect of learning other strategies, which to me is what psychotherapy is all about. That's why I'm here as a psychologist. Psychotherapy is trying to answer the question, how do we regulate our minds with our minds? How do we stop worrying and rumination without taking something to 
sedate the thoughts. And we can do that. We have uh, strategies available, especially from what's called metacognitive therapy and some meditation practices on how to stop worrying. We know how to do that. And that alternative, if coming off the psychiatric drugs means that your thoughts and feelings come alive again, which it often does, you'll need new strategies. But it's also more than that. Also, often it involves actually changing your whole mindset around and your whole beliefs about what mental illness is away from this idea of of having to take something to regulate our minds, away from the idea of pain being pathology, all these things that psychiatry has told us. And I should uh, acknowledge, uh, emphasize now, psychopathology, or what we should call it here, it does exist. It's just not a biological pathology in the way we're told. Every condition described in the DSM exists as a way you can have it. That's not what this is about. It's what it is that we're debating, whether it's a biological illness or it's a reaction to something. So changing your whole mindset around your, your condition, your emotional state of mind as a reaction to something that we have to figure out what is and then do something about that, away from this whole idea of being faulty, broken, deceased. Uh, if you don't want to wind up on the drug again, we need to get to these basic beliefs you have about what your emotions are and what's wrong with you and what's not wrong with you, uh, what you're depressed about, what you're psychotic about. Many of my patients have never had that question asked before in, in uh, clinical care it's because it's been out of the disease model, right? So sometimes psychi coming off psychiatric drugs can be much more than just tapering the drug. And I find sometimes that needs a bit for the discussion. Yeah, that, that's important. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you, you raised something really important there because you talked in the first part of our talk today about the physical dependence that arises because these drugs are acting on receptors in our brain. But then subsequently, you're talking about the psychological dependence that arises when a doctor tells us you, you have a broken brain, you need these drugs, you need to rely on them. So, you know, that, that, I, get, that I, I take that as why there needs to be a response to the physical dependence part, but also to the psychological dependence part too. Exactly. It's, it's, it, it's not free to tell a person. We, we all have beliefs about what our thoughts and emotions are and who we are and what's wrong with us and what's, if something's wrong with us. Um, so it's not free to give this message to people. You're broken. You need this. There's a lot of messages implied in that, whether they're said directly or indirectly. Uh, you'll start to kind of live up to that, making part of your identity. And there's no way in hell you, you'll believe that you have more controllability over your mind when you have to regulate it with a substance. It kind of confirms the beliefs about this being fundamentally uncontrollable, overwhelming. My mind is uncontrollable. It's overwhelming, and I don't understand my emotions. Well, it'll feel better sometimes to not feel that. <laughs> that can be attractive. It can be a way of calming the mind, but it's not solving the problem long term. So yes, we're absolutely, we're absolutely. Um, influencing in a negative way our very basic psychological beliefs about who we are and what a mind is and what a thought is and how we can regulate it when giving this medical model explanation. Thank you, Anders. And, and kind of finally, before we wrap up for today, I, I wondered whether you felt there was anything else important that we should share with people uh, listening to this or, or watching it. Well, the conclusion or the implication is obvious, right? If you've tried coming off your antidepressants in a linear or fixed way, like using linear or fixed dose reductions, and you've deteriorated, which I guess you have, uh, if you've taken it for long enough periods of time, 
you haven't tried actually tapering. That's really the, 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 the headline here. If you tried coming off psychiatric drugs, not in a hyperbolic way, you haven't tried tapering. Meaning that the reaction you experienced may say absolutely nothing about who you are without the drug and what the drug is doing for you. That's really, really, really important to know because people who've tried being in withdrawal will be scared of trying it again. So it's really important to say this is different. Hyperbolic tapering works. We don't have those big fancy randomized controlled trials yet, so we can't say it from the top of the evidence hierarchy, but uh, <laughs> we can't refer to any science saying that, sadly, yet. Um, but uh, from the bottom of the evidence hierarchy, from seeing this and from having all these indirect um, biological measures, um, I'm convinced. Uh, so no, don't be scared. You can try again in another way. It looks different. And really, that's what I just said there is, is it's, it's, it's kind of, this is where it's, the perspective is bigger because we have no clue whatsoever whether long-term antidepressant treatment actually prevents relapse, in my mind, because 100% of the studies cited as evidence of long-term treatment are flawed by not considering withdrawal symptoms because they stop the dose. Either they just stop it from one day to another or with a very rapid tapering meeting, a couple of weeks or so. All of these studies are biased by withdrawal symptoms. So that's a really shocking thing. So many people take these and we don't know whether they're actually necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Anders. And, you know, I, I, you know, I just want to thank you for all the work that you've done and, you know, for the, the help that you provide to people because, you know, it's all contributing to, you know, a rich pool of information now on many aspects of withdrawal and tapering and why people struggle so much. And, you know, we, we, we really need to convince many prescribers don't we that you know getting on people on the drugs is very easy getting people off the drugs isn't anywhere near as straightforward and needs special consideration yep it's uh, it's a crisis indeed for many people uh, that they didn't ask for thank you for your efforts on this and thank you for joining me today anders for this uh, this chat it's been a pleasure me too thank you Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.